Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two seasons in and we're finally figuring out the... I uh, know, right? High five. <laughs> Welcome back to Pandastoria. Friends and enemies, we're back for another episode. Yeah. I know I stole your thing, but... That's okay. <laughs> I've been feeling generous today. <laughs> <laughs> Just today. For one day only. For one day Lindsay's only. Lindsay's feeling generous. <laughs> well, today we are doing a bit of a... Kind of a fun episode. It's a history of ideologies. Or as I've been referring to it as Diploma 30 Prep. Social, <laughs> yeah. social 30 Diploma Prep. Yeah. <laughs> All you high schoolers better be listening. So if you know a high school, if you know someone in grade 12 social in Alberta, please share this uh, yeah. Share this podcast. They're going to They'll thrive. Ace their diplomas. Yeah. Probably. We make no guarantees. Please the, don't sue us if they don't. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why we decided to do this is because, well, Lindsay's a philosopher and I guess ideology file falls under the category Political philosophy. philosophy yeah. yeah. And the thing about philosophies, ideologies is the one thing I actually know about philosophy. I took several courses, like a lot of courses in political science. So I know a lot about this, like ideologies and those kind of, and also if you're a, a history major, you know, you have to take a lot of certain philosophy courses. I'm sure a lot of you you actually really don't have to take that many as a history major in most universities. Yeah, well, I did. Oh. I really did. The other reason for doing this episode, at least on my part, and kind of why I thought about doing it when we were in planning, is that I've just realized that people have a serious lack of understanding of, like, our government system and how, like, political philosophy works at, like, a basic level. And I just feel like that's important, especially with how contentious everything is now. Well, considering there's that article that says Antifa are fa- the real fascists. Yes. Yeah, that okay. article made me want to die. That was so funny because it was so stupid, but also just absolutely insane. So just made me arm wavingly angry because, like, are mostly you the headline me? just made me laugh because it was kind of an oxymoron. Kinda. Well, it was a huge oxymoron, <laughs> to be fair. So I found the title just like almost funny because I was like, "You don't have the right to write this," but here we are. So. Yeah, that's why. So we're going to start off with explaining authoritarianism and totalitarianism. They're not exactly ideologies. They're more of an umbrella term that encompass a ton of different ideologies and whatnot. So starting off with authoritarianism, it is a form of government reliant on obedience of its subjects to authority while sacrificing personal freedoms. It is neither distinctly left or right wing, as ideologies from both extreme ends of the spectrum can be, and let's face it, usually have been authoritarianism. So communist states can be authoritarian, and uh, up to the present have been authoritarian. And also governments on on the right can be authoritarian and mostly have been especially in the far right. And I th- I think it's impossible to be fascist without being authoritarian, but that's that we'll get into that later. Yeah, yeah we'll definitely talk about that. I, I, I generally feel the same, I think, but we can talk about it. It's governed by a centralized government without constitutional accountability, so there's really no constitution, which means you can't, they can just do whatever they want. Power can be concentrated on a single person, usually a dictator, or a central committee with shared powers amongst the members. So examples would be, well, a communist committee, such as like in Yugoslavia, like we talked about, they had a committee made up of people from the different republics, except everyone knows that Tito was ultimately in charge. So it lacks the checks and balances. Especially all those assassins Stalin sent. Oh, yeah. 
So it lacks the checks and balances that places like liberal democracies have. So there's really no, like basically all powers invested in either the central committee or the dictator. So he can be the judge. He can be like anything he wants to pass. It passes. No questions. So it is devoid of most personal freedoms, such as freedom of press, assembly, protests, etc. The government is in control of a large percentage of everyday life. So they can literally, it's literally one of those things where if you're suspected of being an uh, oppressor or like an opposer to the government, you'll be arrested and probably killed or sent to gulags without, they don't need evidence. They don't need due process of law. What they say goes. And historical examples are Argentina between 1966 and 1973, the military junta, the 1973-74 reign of Juan Perón, and the 1974-1983 under Jorge Rafael Vidla. I know I pronounced the last name wrong, I'm sorry. Spain under Francisco Franco and the Falangists. Apartheid South Africa and Yugoslavia under Tito and later Milosevic. Go watch our, or watch, go listen <laughs> to our uh, episodes on the Yugoslav Wars and you will find out all about that, especially episode one. There are current authoritarian governments, which include the People's Republic of China, the, ironically, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, <laughs> Iran, and Saudi Arabia. Depending on who you ask, there are around 46 authoritarian governments in the world today. And some of those are what's known as hybrid regimes, so they have democratic elections, but they're usually rigged and whatnot. Hard air quotes around the Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, Iran, Iran itself is a weird situation because they do have elections, and it's hard to say if they're actually, like, there are people who say, that uh, no, it actually is free, just limited <laughs> between two different groups. But I mean, not saying like, oh, you're getting all wrong on Iran because, yeah, there is oppression. There is they still stone people for like offenses like homosexuality and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm not saying Iran is like I'm not I'm not going, no, you're getting it all wrong on Iran, guys. I'm just saying it's a weird situation. It's a complicated one. Yeah, to, well, to be <laughs> to put it this way, like everyone was going up like up in arms about Ahmadinejad. Yeah. And then nobody mentions, like, you You realize that Ahmadinejad cannot run for re-election. Yeah, he's... He's gone, done. like, after this. Whereas the king of Saudi Arabia has been the king of Saudi Arabia for decades. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 a bit... There's, yeah. It's, so it's different. Like, <laughs> how can you... Like, how can you... Like, you? it's fair to... It was fair to criticize Ahmadinejad and Iran... But you're also supporting a probably even more horrific regime with Saudi Arabia, I would say is more horrific. But I guess, you know, we need the oil. So some example ideologies that fall under authoritarianism are Marxism, Leninism, fascism, and some aspects of corporatism. That's just obviously a small example of it, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, related to authoritarianism, but also not the same thing, which is confusing to many people. And grade 12, if you're listening, this is a key question on the diploma. 
I tutored high school students all last year. I, I'm well aware of what's on this diploma. Um, uniquely qualified for this episode. Uh, anyway, so totalitarianism is a little bit different, but it's essentially also a political concept of a mode of government that prohibits opposition parties, restricts individual opposition to the state and its claims, and exercises extremely high degree of control over public and private life. Um, it's regarded as the most extreme and complete form of authoritarianism, essentially. Uh, political power in totalitarian states has often been held by rule by one leader, essentially. So it's one dude, <laughs> not so much a committee, but one guy, <laughs> which all um, or yeah, which employs all-encompassing propaganda campaigns uh, broadcast by state-controlled mass media. So uh, famously, in the Soviet Union, there was two papers. Pravda, and I, for the, I'm super blanking on the other one now, but the front, there was a joke about it, um, which we'll talk about more in our next season because we're talking about communism a lot more, and uh, yeah, I don't really need to focus on it right now, but good example <laughs> of state media. Pravda was, a th- yeah, and also, I mean, Russia today currently could arguably be um, considered, well, state media. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Not, not totalitarianism, but, like, state media. It's <laughs> a good example. Totalitarian regimes are often marked by political repression, personality cultism, control over the economy, restriction of speech, mass surveillance, and widespread use of state terrorism. Um, I think, you know, having people roll up in the middle of the night and take you to Siberia is probably a <laughs> yeah. good example of state terrorism. <laughs> Just throwing it out there. <laughs> um Historian Robert Conquest describes a totalitarian state as one recognizing no limits to, authority, to its authority in any sphere of public or private life and which extends that authority to whatever length feasible. This concept was sort of first developed by both a Weimar jurist and later Nazi academic, Carl Schmitt, and concurrently by the Italian fascists. So Benito Mussolini, as hopefully you're familiar with, the Italian fascist, he said that Quote, everything within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Schmidt used the term Totalstaat to in, in his influential 1927 work on the legal basis of an all-powerful state, the concept of the political. So basically totalitarianism really did just come straight out of fascism. <laughs> uh-huh. Or at least fascist thinkers. But totalitarian regimes, like I said, are different from authoritarian ones. The latter denotes a state in which the single power holder, an individual or dictator, a committee, or whatever, monopolizes the political power. So authoritarianism is mostly concerned with containing political power, and as long as that is not contested in any way, it will give its society a certain degree of liberty. That's not always been the case, because turns out dictators are usually pretty paranoid people, so they don't really trust that you're not going to challenge their political power. Funny how that works. And so, yeah, totalitarianism does actually try and promote more than just keeping a consolidation of their political power. So some totalitarian governments may promote an elaborate ideology, um, and this officially proclaimed ideology penetrates into the deepest reaches of societal structure, and the totalitarian government seeks to completely control the thoughts and actions of its citizens. So a good example, again, is Nazi Germany or even fascist Italy, although Nazi Germany is probably the best example, because it was a bit more of its own straight-up ideology, whereas the Italians were actually probably more pure fascist. <laughs> so the idea, the, you know, the Hitler was a totalitarian leader. He created his own idea, not just fascism. He took it another step further with national socialism. So, and that was, was used to like completely control the thoughts and actions of its citizens. They were brainwashed with that. It wasn't just about fascism. It was specifically about like this thing 
which was what also keeps him in power because he's at the center of it. <laughs> so, yeah, again, they're kind of similar things, but just like, you know, slight differences. I think what's the most common and important thing to remember grade 12s is that, um, and everyone else, I guess, is that a lot, most authoritarian states are totalitarian yeah. states. I mean, at least through history. Yeah. I mean, you can be, we were discussing this before we recorded this episode, you can be authoritarian without being totalitarian, but you can't be totalitarian without being, being authoritarian. authoritarian. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 one of those, like, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on it, but, I mean, think of your your great dictators, the the Hitlers, the... Great, quote-unquote. Quote-unquote. The, uh, the Pinochets, the... <laughs> All of the horrible people you can think about, horrible dictators, they were all totalitarianism. Yeah. Or and again, on either side of the spectrum, really. Yeah, yeah. Totalitarianism and authoritarianism, no no political <laughs> yeah. allegiance, really. They just, the idea is, I mean, totalitarianism mostly just stemmed out of fascism, but I mean, it wasn't limited to fascism by any means. No, and it, it, not even today. No. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> with that. So with that, we're going to move on to fascism. Which apparently is back in fashion today. <laughs> I didn't actually mean to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, here we are. <laughs> it is a far right ideology, and don't listen to what anyone else tells you. It is a far right ideology. It is not syncretic. It is far right. There is no argument against this. None. So the name derives from the Italian term fascismo, which in turn derives from fascizo, meaning a bundle of sticks. The idea is a single stick is weak and will break easily, but a bundle is strong. And I'm sure you, a lot of you have seen, I, I don't know, maybe not a lot of you, but a few of you have seen like with fascists, like one of the fascist symbols is a bundle of sticks with an axe on the top. That's an actual weapon that was used by the Romans. So basically, yeah, it just lacks basically to dis to describe fascism, a strong community and a tough community, I guess, represented by the axe, which probably means we're going to axe all your personal belief. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so defined by Robert Paxton, who's a professor emeritus of social science at Columbia University in New York. As, quote, a form of political practice distinctive to the 20th century that arouses popular enthusiasm by sophisticated propaganda techniques for an anti-liberal, anti-socialist, violently exclusionary, expansionist, nationalist agenda, end quote. And it's aimed to make the nation, quote, stronger, more powerful, larger, and more successful, end quote, viewing national strength as the only means to create a successful state and will seek to achieve it by any means necessary. Paxton is quoted as saying, If Marxism was meant to become a magnitude of countries sharing assets in an economic idea, fascists tried to do the same thing with a country. End quote. You're going to hear a lot from Paxton from me in the next couple minutes because he's brilliant. So f fascists have a major focus on nationalism. I'm sure some of you heard the term ultra-nationalism. This would be pretty much a type of fascism. There's a large amount of scapegoating and demonizing of specific groups. And I found out researching this, it does not have to be racially motivated. So, for example, it just usually ends up being that way. Yeah. <laughs> Over time. But, for example, Mussolini targeted left-wingers, mainly socialists. 
while Hitler, everyone knows Hitler targeted the Jewish people amongst various other people. <clears throat> I mean, Mussolini I later started targeting Jews, but that was only because he was pressured by Hitler to do that so. kind of was the case, like, with other fascist parties during that period, especially because, like, the British Union of Fascists, the BUF, was another good example of that because, or, I mean, well, their leader was a straight-up anti-Semite, but he at least tried to, like, angle the party towards not presenting itself that way until finally he was like, fuck it, we want to kill Jews. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So Paxton has a list of what he called the five stages of fascism, even though there's seven things listed here. I love when that happens. This is, this is from an article by Live Science, which is actually really great. It's like, what is fascism? So the list here, this is these are taken from the article, by the way. So don't please don't say I'm plagiarizing. I'm quoting you guys. So number one, the primacy of the group supporting the group feels more important than maintaining either individual or universal rights. Two, believing that one's group is a victim, this justifies any behavior against the group's enemies. Three, the belief that individualism and liberalism enable dangerous decadence and have a negative effect on the group. Four, a strong sense of community or brotherhood. This brotherhood's, quote, unity and purity are forged by common conviction, if possible, or by exclusionary violence, if necessary, end quote. Five, individual self-esteem is tied up in the grandeur of the group. Paxton called this an, quote, enhanced sense of identity and belonging, end quote. Six, extreme support of a, quote, natural, unquote, leader who is always male. This results in one man taking on the role of national savior. And finally, seven, quote, the beauty of violence and of will when they are devoted to the group's success in a Darwinian struggle, end quote, Paxton wrote. The idea of a naturally superior group, or essentially, in Hitler's case, a biological racism, fits into fascist interpretation of Darwinism. So basically, that idea of, oh, why am I forgetting the, the line? Oh, uh, survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest. That's it. <laughs> Um, I also then blanked as soon as you yeah. asked me. I'm like, uh. So the, ex the exact origins of fascism are actually unknown, and it is not an original idea of Mussolini. He founded the Fasci Italiani di Combattimento on March 23rd, 1918, after disagreements with the Socialist Party. Yes, Mussolini was initially a socialist. Mussolini's militias would attack, beat, and even kill opponents. Mussolini viewed democracy as a failed system and aimed to organize the Italian people under the power of the state. While Mussolini coined the term fascism, he did not invent the ideology. And some date this idea back to Roman times. Mussolini was elected prime minister in 1922 and he turned Italy into, a first, into the first fascist state in the world. Fascist ideologies include Nazism, identitarianism, phalangism, corporate statism, nation and national Bolshevism, also known as Nazbol, which is an ideology I just found out about. Yeah, did not know that was a thing. <laughs> it's big in Russia, apparently, but... Okay. So, historical examples are, of course, the Axis powers of Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan, and their puppets. Francisco is Spain under the phalangist ideology. Portugal's Estado Novo, which means new state, and Argentina's infamous decade between 1930 and 1943. 
There are no current examples. Spain was the last fascist state, which ended in 1975 with the death of Francisco Franco. And when former King Juan, Juan the first, Juan Carlos the first, excuse me, went against Francisco's wishes and transformed Spain back into a democracy. I mean, there's arguably examples around the world, but I don't buy it. Like, I don't. So example parties and groups are the Heritage Front and the Erring Guard, both from Canada. The National Socialist Movement of the U.S., the alt-right movement, I don't care what you say, you're fascists. The British National Party, Proud Boys, which the Southern Poverty Law Center called an alt-right fight club. That's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) And the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, other good one. Patriot Prayer. There you go. Yeah, Patriot. There's like... Millions. Oh, there's a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of examples. I can't put them all here as much as I want to because I want to out you guys. Essentially, because you guys are assholes and I fucking hate you. Yeah. Anyway, infamous known fascists and neo-fascists are, Lindsay mentioned him briefly, but not by name, Oswald Mosley of the UK and the British British Union of Fascists. Union of Fascists, yeah. Adrian Arcand of Canada of the National Unity Party, who is known as Canada's Hitler. Uh, George Lincoln Rockwell of the U.S., who is founder of the National Socialist Party of the United States. And a few other different parties along the way. Yeah. Uh, Richard Spencer. I don't care what Richard says. He's a fascist and he's a Nazi and he deserves to be punched in the head. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And Francisco Franco of the Falangis Party. Would someone like Milo count Yiannopoulos? He's weird. He's kind of weird. He feels like a fascist for hire. (laughs) He's a troll. Yeah. I, I don't even want to classify him as a like, fascist. Yeah. He's just a troll. Yeah, like I don't think he's principled enough to be a fascist. I don't know. He's a troll. I don't know. And speaking of which, I have I cannot believe we have to fucking say this. Nazis were not socialists, despite their name their full name as the National Socialist German Workers Party and their ideology being known as National Socialism, they're not socialists. The word was used to gain support from the German citizens in creating what is called Volksgemeinschaft, or People's Community. Saying the Nazis were socialists is like saying North Korea is democratic because as it's called the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Yeah, so to that idiot who wrote that article the other day saying that the left... Were really Antifa the, were that Antifa really were really the fascists all along, that's not even physically possible. I mean, we're not, I mean, there have been leftists who've done really shitty things, but you can't say left wings are fascists. You can't. Yeah. It doesn't work. Stop arguing about it. Anyway. (laughs) Speaking of which, we're getting on the extremists of the the left wing side. Super far right. Let's go to the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Completely opposite. And talk about communism. Uh, Communism is the philosophical, social, political, and economic ideology and movement whose ultimate goal is the establishment of the communist society, which is a socioeconomic order structured upon the common ownership of the means of production and absence of social classes, money, and the state. So it's a super, I would say, possibly one of the most idealistic of all of the ideologies. But anyway, communism, like most of the things we've talked about, is an umbrella, ultimately. It includes a variety of schools of thought. So they broadly include Marxism and uh, anarchism, which is anarcho-communism, which we'll talk about later, as well as the political ideologies grouped around both. So there's, it's fractured into a bunch of small ones, just a lot like the other ones, uh, <laughs> really. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. I'm just going to focus mostly on Marxism. 
But while they all have general differences, they share the analysis that the current order of the society stems from its economic system, capitalism, and that in this system there are two major social classes, and the conflict between these two classes is the root of all problems in society, and the situation will ultimately be resolved through a social revolution. So the two classes are the working class, the proletariat, and the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie. The working class are the majority who must work to survive, while the capitalist class are a minority who derive profit from employing the working class through private ownership of the means of production. The revolution would put the working class in power and in turn establish social ownership of the means of production, which, according to this analysis, is the primary element in the transformation of society towards communism. So Marxism and democratic socialism were the two dominant forms of socialism in the 20th century. Democratic socialism advocates economic reform through gradual democratic legislative action rather than a revolution. We'll talk more about that stuff later, but I just wanted to make that distinction now. So technically, communism and democratic socialism are actually both forms of socialism. <laughs> They're just very different. <laughs> um, it's, again, umbrella terms. This crap's confusing. I'll try and keep this straight. Um, you'll ace your diploma if you do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm assuming everyone listening is a high school student, but I guess here we are. Um, anyway, so yeah, Marxist communism is the foremost ideology of the communist movement developed by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Um, Engels had a lot more to do with this than people actually give him credit for. <laughs> like, I feel like when we talk about communism, everybody only talks about Karl Marx, but Friedrich Engels did a lot more than just finance this project. He was really heavily involved. He was also just wealthier, and so Marx needed his money. <laughs> Too. Anyway, uh, Marxism considers itself to be the embodiment of social or scientific socialism, and rather than a model of an ideal society based on intellectual design, it is a non-idealist attempt at an, the understanding of society and history through an analysis based in real life. Marxism does not see communism as a state of affairs to be established, but rather as the expression of re real movement with parameters which are derived completely from real life and not based on any intellectual design. Therefore, Marxism does no blueprinting of a communist society, and it only makes an analysis which concludes what will trigger its implementation and discovers its fundamental characteristics based on the derivation of real-life conditions. At the root of Marxism is the materialist conception of history, known as historical materialism for short. It holds that the key characteristic of economic systems through history has been the mode of production and that the change between modes of production has been triggered by class struggle. This view of history is based a lot on Hegel's view of history, and essentially kind of states that history works in a cycle of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and then a new thesis, or hypothesis, I guess. So essentially, we went from feudalism into monarchism, into capitalism, into communism, whatnot, is essentially how Marx sees history going, or how it's supposed to go. That's his view of history. And historical materialism, essentially, in its most basic way. Um, I hate Hegel, so we're not going to talk about this too much. <laughs> According to this analysis, the Industrial Revolution ushered the world into a new mode of production, capitalism. Before capitalism, certain working classes had ownership of instruments utilized in production, but because machinery was much more efficient, this property became worthless, and the mass majority of workers could only survive by selling their labor, making use of someone else's machinery, and therefore making someone else profit. Thus, with capitalism, the world was divided between two major classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. These classes are directly antagonistic. The bourgeoisie had private, pro private ownership of the means of production and earns a profit off surplus value, which is generated by the proletariat, who has no ownership of the means of production and are therefore no, or no option, or have no option but to sell its labor to the bourgeoisie. Marx saw this as a never-ending cycle that would basically only end with revolution. 
An important concept in Marxism, though, is this is socialization versus nationalization. And this becomes important when we're then talking about actual examples of communism. Nationalization is the merely state ownership of property, whereas socialization is actual control and management of property by society. So this is the ultimate goal of, communi of communism. Marxism considers socialization its goal and considers nationalization a tactical issue, with state ownership still being in the realm of the capitalist mode of production. Engels states, quote, The transformation into state ownership does not do away with the capitalistic nature of the productive forces. State ownership of the production of for, er, state ownership of the production forces is not the solution of the conflict, but concealed within it are the technical conditions that form the elements of the solution. So essentially, state ownership is still not what's right and essentially is still capitalism, but it's a step towards full socialization. But this distinction is, again, really important because it has led some Marxist groups to label states such as the Soviet Union and other current Marxist states as state capitalists rather than true Marxists, um, because they've never actually socialized, they've only ever nationalized. But also under communism is Leninism, which is essentially Marxism, but with a couple of small differences, and was developed by Russian revolutionary and first Soviet premier Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. And Leninism is essentially for the democratic organization of a revolutionary vanguard party and the achievement of a dictatorship of the proletariat as political prelude to the establishment of socialism. So Lenin liked Marxist theory, but also needed to apply it to 20th century Russia, which was very agrarian and not particularly industrialized and, in fact, pretty far behind the rest of the world in a lot of ways. Not a place that Marx expected no. the ideology to actually take form. No, not at all. And... To be fair, it really didn't. <laughs> um, I mean, what actually really became the ideology of the Soviet Union really is not Marxism in a lot of ways. That's not even really Leninism entirely. But yeah, so as I said, Leninism comprises the socialist political and economic theories developed from Marxism, as well as Lenin's own interpretations of Marxist theory for practical application to the conditions in Russia. So essentially, Lenin knew that for things to change in Russia, it wouldn't be a spontaneous revolution. It needed to be a violent revolution, and it needed to be spurred by a group. So his revolutionary vanguard party, the Bolsheviks, became that catalyst. And he thought that it couldn't go straight to communism, like full communism, because people just, they wouldn't have known what to do. I mean, the country was already so poorly educated and kind of behind in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, serfdom had only really ended like at most 100 years before this point. So, yeah, Russia had slavery too. Anyway, <laughs> so this, so Leninism did actually become the main ideology of the Soviet Union for the first five years when Lenin was in charge. But then Lenin died, and now we have Stalin. Uncle uh, Joe. Uncle Joe, or Moustache. Oh, yeah, you're right, yeah. Moustaches. Um, anyway, <laughs> so the other sort of main sect of communism that I'm going to discuss here until later when I talk more about the fun hybrid of anarchy and communism. Um, so Marxism-Leninism, it's a political ideology that was developed by Joseph Stalin, which according to its proponents is based in Marxism and Leninism. So the term describes the specific political ideology which Stalin implemented in the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and on a global scale in the Communist International, which was essentially the main organization for communist parties all over the world. There is no definite agreement between historians about whether Stalin actually followed the principles of Marx and Lenin, but Marxism-Leninism was the ideology most clearly visible in the communist movement and that of the USSR, and as such is the most prominent ideology associated with communism. 
the USSR is the best example we have of a communist state. It was under communism for 70 years. So we're able to analyze it, I guess, a little bit further as a result. Stalinism refers to Stalin's specific style of governance, whereas Marxism-Leninism refers to the ideology. So when people talk about Stalinism, it's important to know that that actually isn't an ideology. That's literally just Stalin's way of governing. So Marxism-Leninism survived de-Stalinization after he died, but Stalinism did not. That was the purpose of de-Stalinization, was to get rid of Stalinism. So Marxism-Leninism has largely been criticized by other communists and Marxists. They argue that Marxist-Leninist states did not actually establish socialism, but rather state capitalism. So to these groups, Marxism-Leninism is neither Marxism nor Leninism, nor the union of both but rather an artificial term created to justify Stalin's ideological distortion forced into the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And truthfully, that sounds legit to me, that, you know, that was the case. I mean, so t- Stalin was a totalitarian more than he was anything else. And so I could see, you know, that being the case. I, I do think there's some legitimacy to the idea that the Soviet Union was actually neither, was neither Leninist, Marxist, or either, or both. Like, it really was state capitalism with a dictator. But would it, would it be still classified as communism? It was, but okay. I mean, it's just argued by other communists that it kind of really wasn't at the same time, because it didn't actually establish socialism. Right. It just established state capitalism. Well, this is why I agree with the horseshoe the- horseshoe. Yeah, rather than diagram, the line. Rather than the line, yeah. because, yeah, I mean, they do tend to bend kind of in the same towards... Like the yeah, they're, further they're, you go on either end, they're closer together than they are apart. Yeah, the, the like the further you go on the spectrum, yeah. Um, um, on either side, they're yeah. more. They get more authoritarian than anything. Yeah, I mean, like I I talked about. I'll just mention it again because this is relevant. But like we talk about Stalinism all the time, but Stalinism isn't an ideology. That was his specific style of governance. So Stalinism Stalinism died when Khrushchev came to power and de-Stalinized. But Marxism-Leninism did survive. But, I mean, if you do think about it, like, when you really break it down, like, socialism wasn't really established in the Soviet Union in a lot of ways. I can see that criticism, right? Because, like, everything's just owned by the state. So, okay, it's not owned by capitalists anymore, but is the Communist Party of the Soviet Union really any better? (laughs) Because it was very corrupt. Again, I'm not really advocating for real Marxism or communism. I don't really have a strong... I mean, I do have strong Neither feelings, of us but do. yeah, I mean, but I definitely do see the criticism from other communists and communists that like the Soviet Union. And as a result, like Cuba is a good example now that's still happening. North Korea is an interesting one. I don't know enough about their communist party yeah, to really even want to call them communists. From what, what, to from be what I've heard, they're more a remnant of Japanese fascism yeah. than than communism yeah i mean it's like it's basically communism but with a lot of japanese fascism elements it's weird you know what i mean yeah that's why i was kind of like i'm not i'm hesitant to call them a modern communist government because they say they are but i don't know much i know enough about their like structure to really want to call them a truly like marxist type government or communist government no it's it wouldn't they wouldn't even classify them no they they it's called juche or Juch. Yeah. And it's a weird... It was created yeah. by Kim Il-sung, who's Kim Jong-un's grandfather. grandfather. It, yeah, it was created by him. And it's just a weird amalgamation yeah. of, like... So I think in terms of just, like, good examples of... Well, I don't know if they're good examples. There's no, there's no true example of 
true communism. But there are communists. But there are states, communists. Yeah. So so communist states, really the best examples have been the Soviet Union because they had 70 years of it. So just the easiest to analyze. Uh, but also Cuba. Um, Vietnam. Vietnam. Sort of China. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So Maoism technically is a form of Marxism-Leninism, which, again, <laughs> if we're talking about that, it's awkwardly not really either. So it's become its own thing and has been... Also, uh, it's now way different. I would say China currently is very much state capitalist. Oh, it very much is. Yeah, like, I think I think now you could most communists are like that's a state capitalist state. If I ever saw one, not so much a communist one. Well, they also have in their own other unique form. They of... do like Maoism and like Chinese communism has been influenced by a lot of like Eastern Asian like 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 their yeah. own political philosophies as well. It's not yeah, based entirely. Like that was also a big reason why China and the Soviet Union weren't really allies. Right. Is because of the split of like so Maoism started as essentially a similar form of government as Stalin was implementing, but then started to differ because they were also influenced by other I mean thinkers in their own region. And right. Then yeah, I mean obviously there was other things that were coming yeah, into split, but, they but have, ideologically they split. Yeah, they have this other ideology that's called. Um, people might have heard of this. It's called socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, and basically what it is is that, uh, for like in short, it's very complicated. But in short, it's overall socialism, but they have specific economic areas that are allowed to use forms of capitalism in order to gain profit. So. Those places are like Beijing, Shanghai, Nanjing, I think. think so. Like Places like that. And also they have Hong Kong and Macau, Schrodinger's countries. Yeah, something like that. Because they're, they're both independent and dependent dependencies of China. It's, yeah, it's very confusing. But Schrodinger's countries is definitely the yeah, best way to put it. <laughs> but yeah, and everyone's been hearing about Hong Kong and whatnot. And it's fair to treat them as if they're a separate country. I mean... The Chinese treat them as if they're a separate country, but we could do a whole episode just on Hong Kong alone. But now we move on to a classification or like an ideology that I'm sure any of you who've played Age of Empires will know will know this one: feudalism. And it is classified both as a socio-political and an economic structure. Well, how feudalism works is citizens were granted land in exchange for certain services. And the way the structure works is kings, mostly, were at the top of the chain and would divide his his lands, known as fiefs, among barons in exchange for their loyalty. Barons maintained their armies and would themselves divide their land amongst lords. And what lords were, knights who owed military service to barons should war occur. Finally came the peasants who would work on the land in order to produce food, armor, weapons, etc. Like, I mean, when you hear the word peasants, you people like it's fair to assume like farmers and whatnot, because that's what a majority of the population did. But they were also miners and blacksmiths, all those kinds of people that produce all sorts of different goods from that back then. So feudalism dates back to 8th century France in an era then known as the Frankish kingdoms, the kings of the Francia kingdoms decided instead of land grants, which gave permanent ownership, they would instead keep the lands for themselves and simply grant its use. 
So feudalism soon spread to Spain, the German region, Italy, and the Slavic countries. And it was introduced to England in 1066 with the Norman invasion, and from there introduced to Scotland and Ireland. Land holdings was a hereditary system creating local dynasties which took power away from the king eventually. Their land would form into territorial states and in turn the privatization of goods. These landowners began collecting taxes from people traveling along the roads, participating in their markets, etc. This is where these grand estates that you might have heard of have come from. These families that just accumulated land and wealth just from time immemorial. It began to decline around the time of the Black Death from 1346 to 1353, which is the plague. And that killed between 30% and 60% of Europe's population. Furthermore, urban centers began growing more and more in population. And this, in turn, led to changes in economics where wealth became more important as opposed to land ownership. Feudalism officially ended in Western Europe around the 1500s. And the last remnants of feudalism in practice in France ended with the French Revolution. The last place considered to have practiced feudalism was Isle of Sark in April 2008. What? Yes. <laughs> wow. Which is part of the Ballywick of Guernsey in the Channel Islands. Yeah, like think about that. There's still remnants of feudalism in practice today with aristocracy and sub-aristocracies in countries around the world, but in practice it's gone. Like, it's been gone for de- ages right now. April 2008. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. I know, I know. Feudalism was an extreme kind of monarchy, I would say. Yeah, you could you could say that. Yeah, and I mean, I say... I, I mean, say, I think less organized than monarchy. Just because it's more, like, specific to... I mean, I guess, like, the thing about feudalism is inher- it's inherently just, like, a little less centralized... I a guess. little, yeah, but I mean, ultimate power still a lot relies in, yeah. in the... And I'm going to say king because there's, yeah. like, so few queens in yeah. in the history. Like, I'm not being a... No, no, no. It's just pretty much true. Yeah. I, I just feel like when I think of feudalism, I think of it being more, like... I guess maybe the difference is, like, monarchism in ways kind of, I don't know, modernized was more like involved with modernization or maybe just more associated with like that period change. I don't know. I I just feel like I know there's differences obviously, and you've covered them, but, um, yeah, it's, well, it's that whole, like, I think like the description I saw, it's like in a pyramid. Yeah. There's like a single King and then there's a few barons and then quite a few Lords and then many peasants. I mean, I think the difference really with like monarchism, especially through, like nearer to now is that like all of the people who like the barons and people like that lost a lot of that power. It's oh, mostly yeah. symbolic. Whereas like feudalism, like they did have that power. Right. A lot more. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, we're about to find out about monarchism. Like, yeah. Right now. I just think of feudalism as being maybe a little less centralized. Like it still okay. is, but just like, that's just yeah, how I think of it. Would it's, it still be considered a kind of monarchy? Do you think? Yeah, or is it just its own thing? I think it's like a precursor to monarchy. Okay. And the only reason I really say that is just kind of looking at, like, a history of monarchism is, like, I mean, monarchy is, like, the pretty much among the oldest of political institutions, period. But, yeah, I don't know how to describe the differences. But, uh, yeah, so monarchy, monarchical rule. 
I'm going to fuck that word up so bad, <laughs> um, is among the old, yeah, like I said, one of the, among one of the oldest political institutions. But it, with it, the differ, the thing with monarchy is that uh, the power of monarchy and its legitimacy is often claimed from a higher power. So in Europe, the divine right of kings, and in China, the mandate of heaven is what it was called. Um, oh, yeah, the heavenly kingdom. I know about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, monarchism can generally be understood as falling into categories, principally the categories of absolute monarchy and constitutional monarchy. I mean, monarchy still exists today, so that's kind of why I'm dividing this up. It's pretty important to talk about. <laughs> um, absolute monarchy stands in, in as an opposition to anarchism and additionally from the Age of Enlightenment, liberalism and communism, and well, everything else pretty much. Anything that doesn't require one ruler, it stands in opposition to. <laughs> <laughs> it seems kind of obvious to say that, but I felt like it needed to be said. Um, if you can get voted out, get out. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with absolute monarchy because it's the kind of most classical form. And I think the form that most people think about actually when you think of monarchy historically is absolute monarchy. I mean, King Louis. I, they're not wrong. No, I, I, I would think that's pretty much the case. So although there are some historians that argue this, which I'm going to talk about in a minute because it's interesting. So... Absolute monarchy is a form of monarchy in which the monarch, so king slash queen, holds the supreme authority and where that authority is not restricted by any written laws, legislature, or customs. So absolute monarch can do whatever they want. Uh, dictator gonna dictate, <laughs> basically. <laughs> We're bringing that back. These are often hereditary monarchies. I mean, most, I mean, pretty much all monarchies are, but it's especially important with absolute monarchies. They don't want any availability for political clamoring <laughs> at all. So it's an actual crisis when there is no heir to the throne or no immediate... It started life. huge major wars. It has, yeah. I mean, not great. Either way, there's been a lot of history of things going badly for people who <laughs> didn't have a direct... Even who did have a direct descendant, they just it still went poorly for them. Uh, so throughout much of European history, the divine right of kings was the theological justification for absolute monarchy. Many claimed supreme autocratic power by divine right and that their subjects had no rights to limit their power. Charles I of Scotland and England and his father, James I of England and also James of Scotland, James IV of Scotland. Yes. Yeah, became James I of England. James was the first person to really start, at least in recorded British history, <laughs> was one of the first to start bringing, trying to have absolute power, which caused a war in Scotland. <laughs> and then when Charles, his son, tried to bring absolute rule to the United Kingdom, it also caused another war, which became the Civil War. <laughs> Although it's kind of interesting that it became a major cause of the English Civil War, despite the fact that Charles I actually did have absolute rule for like 11 years after he dissolved the Parliament of England for a time. So I guess people just decided to revolt because of 11 years of absolute rule by Charles, but... Um, well, I mean, when you learn about the guy who led the army against him, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Fuck you, Oliver Cromwell. Yep. By the 19th century, the divine right was regarded as an obsolete theory in most countries in the Western world, uh, except for Russia, where it was still given credence as the official justification for the Tsar's power until the February Revolution in 1917, which spurred Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate, which meant his son Alexei, a hemophiliac who was like 12 years old, became the Tsar. Whole thing led to the Russian Revolution in October, and then communism. So, violent end to that monarchy. Which is a little disappointing in a lot of ways, but anyway. 
There is disagreement among historians on the extent of absolutism among European monarchs, though. And this is what I kind of mentioned a second ago. Because, in general, some historians disagree that all monarchies were absolute, even the ones that technically were. Essentially, they argue that those monarchs that were labeled as absolutist exerted no greater power over their subjects than any other non-absolutist ruler, which is, like, kind of true. These historians tend to emphasize the differences between the absolutist rhetoric of, monarch of monarchs and the realities of the effective use of power by these monarchs. So, I mean, even if you do have absolute control, you are still a little bit governed by the public or the, the you know, public opinion. You still have to look a little. Yeah, it just... Like I people just gotta, can revolt. It just feels like one of those things like people are trying to make debate for the sake of it. And it's I just feel like, like can it's, you just yeah. Can you just say absolute? Like, can we not have this... I mean, debate. yeah, I generally agree, although it's like, I mean, I think it depends how you want to look at it, I suppose, because monarchies at the time that were governed by a constitution at the same time as an absolutist, like they, the Russia, like, like Tsar Nicholas II didn't really have that much more power than Victoria, for instance, did. Yeah. I mean, Victoria is maybe a poor example because she didn't have as much power as even previous monarchs, but still, it's, it's true that he was absolutist and she wasn't, but he had a little less power. And he had, like, technically more power, but really didn't. So, I mean, I get the argument. But I think when you think about, like, or I think discussing absolutist versus not is literally just talking about the absence of a constitution. That's, I think, the thing that's most, probably most important to just remember. But from an ideological standpoint, like, I do understand kind of that historical debate about, like, okay, so if we're going to call this guy an absolutist, but this person not, like, where do we really draw the line? Because sure, there was no constitution, but, like, this person was at just as big of a risk of essentially being overthrown. <laughs> The best, I actually think possibly like the best, like the most classic example of absolute monarchy that's not Russia, because people, I guess, maybe know less about that than I do, um, is probably actually like the French monarchy. I mean, what spurred the French Revolution was a whole lot of lack of constitution and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it pretty much, it, it, it definitely happened a lot differently in France than... Heads literally rolled, people. Literally rolled. And... I mean, I guess that's technically true in the Russian case, except that they weren't really rolling so much as just bleeding. <laughs> uh, in England, I, since it's a still a monarchy, so may as well talk about it. Um, royalty ceded power elsewhere in a gradual gradual process. So the monarchy in England hasn't been an absolute monarchy since like sometime around 1215. <laughs> a group of nobles forced King John to sign the Magna Carta. So, I mean, it hasn't really been an absolute monarchy wholly, yeah, for a a long, 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 long time. The Magna Carta, for those of you who don't know, guaranteed its barons certain liberties and established that the king's powers were not absolute. In 1687, the Glorious Revolution and the overthrow of King James II established the principles of a constitutional monarchy, which would later be worked out by John Locke and other philosophers. Absolute monarchy, which was actually justified by Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan. I'm going to talk about Hobbes in a minute again remained a prominent principle elsewhere. In the 18th century, Voltaire and others encouraged enlightened absolutism, which was embraced by the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II and Catherine II of Russia. So, I mean, like, technically, I think that's why historians start to kind of, like, squibble about, well, is Russia past Catherine technically mm -hmm. absolute? Because they're embracing more. They did freely give up some power. So obviously monarchies still exist today, but the vast majority of them, I would actually say almost all of them, no, all of them, actually. No. No, not all of them, but pretty much all of them except for, like, five. <laughs> well, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE. Brunei. Swaziland. Brunei. 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 
That's um, pretty much it, though, because everyone else has a constitution. There's some, but, I mean, that still cancels the vast majority of a constitution. I mean, that's like five countries. Yeah, exactly. And they all vary because in some of those, some of them don't actually have as much of an absolute ruler as, like, Saudi Arabia. There's more of a structure yeah, in some of them. Yeah, so even absolutely. then, it's like, again, not even really absolute, but also not constitutional. But in terms of... Constitutional monarchy, it's a form of monarchy in which the sovereign exercises authority in accordance with a constitution. So constitutional monarchies uh, range from countries such as Morocco, Jordan, Kuwait, and Bahrain, where the constitution grants substantial discretionary powers to the sovereign, to countries such as Japan and Sweden and England. In Japan and Sweden, the monarch retains pretty much no formal authority. The British monarch has a little bit of authority. I mean, they have to... She's responsible for signing the Constitution. Yeah. I mean, the way I heard it described is she allows things to happen that the Parliament wanted to do anyway. Yeah, but she can also stop them if... There's no recorded history of this happening. But the monarch can technically choose to not. So if they want to amend the Constitution to say, like, these people don't have rights and say she felt like that wasn't cool, she could not sign that amendment. So, like, it's never happened, but it could. It's happened in Canada. But yeah. not the, it wasn't the queen who did it. It was the governor, governor general. general. I mean, you, I mean, I know that the not signing something or just pro- postponing parliament or postponing no, they, an they've, election. They've actually not. There's there's been examples of. I don't know if it's the governor general, but definitely the lieutenant governors who have not signed something. Yeah, I knew lieutenant governors. I actually don't think the lieutenant governors ever said no. Because or not lieutenant um, governor. The governor general. general. Yeah, I, no. I think you're right. Because I think yeah. I think um, well, actually that's true because the only amendments to the Canadian Constitution really happened. Like, the major ones that would stick out were obviously signed. Yeah. Yeah, lieutenant governors and lieutenant governor generals, who, for those of you who don't know, are the Queen's are the representative of the Queen's representative to the provinces um, in Canada. I mean, technically, Canada is a constitutional monarchy, and it part is part constitutional monarchy because we have a monarch and and a constitution. Queen Lizzie. And she has to sign our constitution. Yeah. (laughs) So we're an interesting one, though, because... We're like, I mean, we're, we're similar to Britain where it's a parliamentary democracy and a constitutional monarchy and like another type of monarchy too, technically, that I can't remember off the top of my head and I probably should have looked this up, but it doesn't really matter because <laughs> cons- constitutional is the main one. But there was another one I remember talking about and it was really not that. Im- I would say constitutional is the best example. The oldest constitutional monarchy dates back to ancient times and that of the Hittites. They were an ancient Anatolian people and lived during the Bronze Age, whose king or queen had to share their authority with an assembly, which was the equivalent of a modern-day deliberative assembly or legislature. So essentially, the first time, or the Kingdom of England became a constitutional monarchy in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution, as I mentioned. It was restricted by laws such as the Bill of Rights of 1689 and the Act of Settlement in 1701, although limits on the power of the monarch are much older than that, as we mentioned, the Magna Carta. But through time more limits to the power of the monarch has shifted. This concept was essentially what we live with in terms of what we think of constitutional monarchies and the present day concept was developed in the United Kingdom with the Glorious Revolution and with the British monarchy changing. So democratically elected parliaments and their leader, the prime minister, exercised power with the monarchs having ceded power and remaining as essentially a, a titular position. So they're ceremonial. They're a figurehead yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, they still they have some power. It's just that they don't really use it, and they're not motivated to use it. I mean, well, they know if they use it, then they're done. They're gone. Sticking their necks out yeah. for sure. I mean, I think unless it was in the case of like, and this would probably be the first time in humanity this ever happened, a monarch like sticking their necks out for the people instead of the government, <laughs> like, yeah, 
Like, that has happened before, hasn't I get, it? Uh, I, I, it probably has. Probably happened. has. Uh, oh, it has happened. Like yeah. I do know an example. Oh. There was an attempted military coup in Spain to right. reinforce or to like basically bring back Francoist style, and Juan Carlos came on tele. Like, and they said they were acting on behalf, of, like they were acting in support of the king. Juan Carlos went on TV and and denounced the coup and said he did not support the coup and. He supported the parliament and whatnot, and so the coup failed. So yeah, he stuck. He, I would, I would. Like, yeah, would you count. say that was sticking his neck out for the people? Yeah, but I don't think that means like exercising official power. Like I think I'm thinking of literally like the queen. Okay. I'm thinking of like. Well, I mean, that, I think that still counts because that's still a, a cool story. <laughs> and also, yeah. like for once, a monarch did something like for the people. <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, I mean, it's not crazy to me that the like crazy people currently leading the UK could propose some kind of constitutional amendment to say, strip the rights of like Muslims. Okay. And the queen's like, I'm not signing that. <laughs> Cause that's against everything. I believe, you know, like yeah. that kind of thing. Then I could see her surviving only in that the public would probably have overwhelming support for that. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, that exact, my example is maybe not the greatest example and you could attack it, but you know what I mean? Like that yeah, kind of thing, like yeah. a broad, like, you know, some, someone's rights or something like, that the popular opinion would be on the side of the monarch for sticking their necks out and not signing a constant, not signing an amendment or not allow, you know, like a, yeah. an act of protest almost like okay. that. Yeah. I, okay. That's yeah. like the only time I could see them not then just being dethroned <laughs> or like losing even more power. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll, yeah. Cause I think if the, if it was the reverse and they refused to sign some kind of order that gave people power, There'd be like well, if, if they refused to sign the Marriage Equality Act in yeah. the UK, yeah, yeah, that would have been like then obviously that per, you know that would have oh, been bad. Th- there would have been protests. <laughs> would have been bad all around Buckingham. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, even frankly, like in Canada, because the constitutional amendment in Canada to allow that. Absolutely, yeah. Like, so I think that's probably enough about monarchies. Yeah, to be honest, um, actually, one more interesting, quick little tidbit about monarchies. So in terms of current monarchies, uh, the majority of them are constitutional monarchies. Uh, in most of these, the monarch wields only symbolic power, although in some, the monarch does play a role in political affairs. In Thailand, in Thailand for instance, King uh, Bumibol... Oh, God, I can't say that last name. The King of Thailand. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, Thailand. I just... I would do would not justice to that. Um, it would be more offensive if we tried to pronounce it. It really would be. Like, it really yeah. would be. Uh, so in Thailand, the king, who uh, reigned from 1946 to 2016, played a critical role in the nation's political agenda and in various military coups. Uh, similarly, in Morocco, King Mohammed VI wields significant but not absolute power. They do have a constitution. Uh, Liechtenstein is a democratic principality whose citizens have voluntarily given more power to their monarch in recent years. Because... Okay. Uh, <laughs> you do you, Liechtenstein, I guess. Um, there do also remain a handful of countries in which the monarch is the true ruler, like we talked about. Um, the majority of these countries are oil-producing Arabic or Arab-Islamic monarchies, so Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. Um, other strong monarchies include Brunei and Swaziland, like Jonah mentioned. Yeah, I thought the Liechtenstein thing, that was the thing I was most looking for, but that yeah. was, like, fascinating to me. Weird. And I kind of want to look into that more because I'm just like, wait, everyone else is like, no, take the power away from the monarch. And Liechtenstein's like, yeah, you know what? They're all right. Andorra is a weird monarchy because it is a principality. But the princes, are it's a co-principality. So one of them is a 
is the Bishop of Urgell in mm. Spain. Yeah. And the other prince is the pre- um, president of France. So Emmanuel Macron is a is a prince, technically. Okay. Yeah, it's so bizarre, like, <laughs> the way Andorra works, but it was for I mean, protection. I guess the country is like 76,000 people, so I'd probably... Yeah, it's a small country between sandwiched between Spain and France. France. So they have this co-principality and it was their way of having protection because they they've haven't had an army in centuries. It's the the president of France and France is like seen as a big revolu- like anti, like it was Whoa. like one a huge anti-monarchical Again. revolution. Heads literally rolled. Yeah. The president of France is a monarch. <laughs> I mean, they don't, they don't, they literally, it's, it's again, like, it's yeah. completely symbolic. Yeah. And, and or just, like, like they, the, the Bishop of Urgell and uh, the President of France, they have no say in what Andorra does. Yeah. It's just like, this is, it's just them saying, oh, like, we, we will protect them. And I think, frankly, like, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are listening who are like, well, why would they not just, you know, do something different? I think in this case, it probably just doesn't really matter in terms of form of government. Like, they're obviously, it's, again, it's a, it's like 75,000 people. It's smaller than the city of Calgary. Like, yeah, in terms they, of they population. Just, they do what they want. You do anyway. what works, yeah. I think. I mean, it's basically the same in Canada. We yeah. do what we want anyway, and we've never had problems. So, no. I mean, basically, you can say we're more of a parliamentary democracy than we are a constitutional monarchy we just yeah. i mean you do see the queen's face on every again, on the currency why i have the general opinion of like why <laughs> why do we need the monarchy it's like it's again that whole mindset of like if it doesn't break my bones or anything there's no real need to change it. i totally understand why it's not changing and why it won't change for a long time i just yeah. that was that was monarchism yeah sorry guys bit of a jumbled mess but hey yeah, I mean, that was me kings queens i Getting the tangents, but anyway. It's, it's again, probably not the hardest of the ones to understand. Yeah, so liberalism, everyone's favorite term lately. <laughs> so traditionally, it is a political and moral philosophy based on liberty, consent of the governed, and equality before the law. <laughs> Liberals espouse a wide array of views, depending on their understanding of these principles, but they generally support limited government individual rights, including civil and human rights, capitalism, free markets, democracy, secularism, gender equality, racial equality, internationalism, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of religion. So all of you who have been calling us libtards, most of you believe in the same shit, so think about that. (laughs) Anyway, liberalism became a distinct movement in the Age of Enlightenment when it became popular among Western philosophers and economists. Liberalism sought to replace the norms of hereditary privilege, state religion, absolute monarchy, the divine right of kings, and traditional conservatism with representative democracy and the rule of law. Liberals also ended mercantilist policies, royal monopolies, and other barriers to trade instead of promoting free markets. Philosopher John Locke is often credited with founding liberalism as a distinct tradition based on the social contract, arguing that each man has a natural right to life, liberty, and property, and governments must not violate these rights. So two things. One, John Locke essentially wrote the political system for the United States, so important to know about if you're Americans, <laughs> or anyone else, actually, who wants to understand American, the system, American system, read John Locke, which, good luck, his writing is horrible. <laughs> I recommend a website called Early Modern Text if you would like to read his things. It basically translates it into good English, because John Locke, <laughs> even though he's an Englishman, can't write. Anyway, second thing, social contract. 
The social contract is a moral and political philosophical theory that originated during the Enlightenment, as I mentioned, along with liberalism, and it usually concerns legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. The social contract argument typically is that individuals have consented either explicitly or tacitly to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler or to the decision of a majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights or maintenance of the social order. So the term social contract takes its name from the books of the social contract or Du Contrat Social au Principe de Droit Politique by French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Arguments for a social contract do actually exist in Greek and Stoic philosophy, but the social contract emerged as the leading doctrine of political legitimacy during the mid-17th to 19th centuries. So Rousseau is like pretty much one of the foremost thinkers on the social contract, and I do recommend reading that book if you're interested in learning about it. The start, starting point for most social contract theories is an examination of the human condition absent of any political order, which is referred to as the state of nature by Thomas Hobbes, a British philosopher and political theorist. In this condition, individuals' actions are bound only by their personal power and conscience. All theorists approach the concept of political authority differently, with Thomas Hobbes famously stating that life in the state of nature would be, quote, solitary and nasty, brutish and short. So the state of nature is essentially what they consider anarchy, so there is nobody in control and you don't owe anybody shit, and you just basically do you. And... Obviously, as a society, that's got some problems. So the social contract essentially stems out of that. In the absence of political order and law, everyone would be unlimited or would have unlimited natural freedoms, including the, quote, right to all things and thus freedom to plunder, rape and murder, etc. would all be available. There would be an endless, quote, war against all or bellum omnium contra omnis. So in order to avoid that fate, free men contract with each other to establish political community, civil society through a social contract in which they all gain security in return for subjecting themselves to an absolute sovereign, one man, or an assembly of men. Uh, or women, now, but, you know, Rousseau didn't think a lot about women. Neither did Hobbes, or any of these other people. Uh, except John Stuart Mill. We like John Stuart Mill. We're cool with him. Anyway. Um, social contract theory became popular in the English tradition, first in the wake of the English Civil War, which lasted from 1642 to 1651, and became a major part of the Glorious Revolution of 1688, the American Revolution of 1776, and the French Revolution of 1789, as all of these used liberal philosophy to justify the armed overthrow of royal tyranny. So, in Hobbes's defense, Hobbes did live through the English Civil War and saw how horrible it was. A lot of people died, it was really terrible for everybody. And he saw the aftermath of the Civil War and what he experienced during the Civil War. That's the experience he based his idea of the state of nature on. So... We're, when we talk about anarchism, you know, we'll talk about the lack of, how, you know, how there is a possibility and how people, like, that ideology of believing you can, so, like, succeed with no, with no power, um, and no government, or with no government, I guess, not no power. But in Hobbes's defense, he did, you know, have a traumatic reason for basing that theory. But anyway, social contract is a thing we all have now. It's essentially the idea behind a constitution, is we're given these freedoms, and we agree to these freedoms, but we also agree that we have to give up a couple of other freedoms in order for protection and stability and whatnot. So liberalism began to spread rapidly in the 19th and 20th century, uh, particularly in the wake of the French Revolution, though, was really when it took off. Uh, the 19th century saw liberal governments established in nations across Europe and South America, whereas it was a well-established alongside republicanism in the United States already. Uh, in Victorian Britain, it was used to critique the political establishment appealing to science and reason on behalf of the people. Liberalism influenced periods of reform in the Ottoman Empire, along with the rise of secularism, constitutionalism, and nationalism. 
Before 1920, the main ideological opponent of classical liberalism was conservatism, but liberalism then faced major ideological challenges from new opponents, fascism and communism. (laughs) But during the 20th century, liberal ideas also spread even further, especially in Western Europe, as liberal democracies found themselves on the winning side of World War II. So, suck it, fascism. I mean, I guess that's not entirely true statement. Communism also found itself on the victory in World War II, but... Mostly... Liberal. Mostly liberal societies, though. <laughs> I don't even know that, like, communism won. It just survived. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Russia was almost destroyed, so in a lot of ways. They were never close to defeat, but they were close to pretty much absolute destruction. Yeah, the establishment of social liberalism, which is what? Yeah, okay, so important thing. What we now refer to as liberalism, so when people are referred to as being a liberal, is social liberalism, so a modern liberalism, if you will. Classical liberalism is certainly more conservative. Laissez-faire. Yeah. I mean, it's more conservative than how we usually view liberalism now. I would think classical liberalism is a little bit like centrist politics to some extent. Yeah. It's kind of the best way to think of that. It's 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 a bit of an, like a bit of a... It glosses over it a little bit. That's probably the best way to think of it. So yeah, the establishment of social liberalism, which is, again, now what is being referred to when we talk about liberalism, became a key component in the expansion of the welfare state. So I mean, classical liberalism really is pre-welfare state in lots of ways. It's the heyday of it. I mean, they believed in, yeah, laissez-faire, so hands off the economy, uh, you know, limited government, so limited government intervention, believing the free markets would reset themselves. So liberalism, class, I would say classical liberalism really died in the Depression in a lot of ways, like, or during the Depression. I think a lot of those ideas kind of didn't die, but they were less popular because people realized that the state does need to intervene sometimes, and we do need <laughs> a, a, welfare, a welfare state that the market can't help everyone or isn't going to libertarian ideologues will argue against that but we all know how we feel about libertarians fuck (laughs) them uh ideology that makes way more sense on paper than in practice what is it it's libertarian cats are the libertarians of the world of the animal world convinced (laughs) that their own dependence will completely dependent off others yeah Yeah, that's that's about right (laughs) i'm just thinking of your cat as a libertarian now I always think of him as a libertarian. <laughs> and it makes so much sense when I think about my well, at least one of my cats. <laughs> Here's looking at you, Rocky. Um, <laughs> anyway. The fundamental elements of contemporary society have liberal roots. Uh, liberals sought and established a constitutional order that prized important individual freedoms, such as freedom of speech and freedom of association. An independent judiciary and public trial by jury, and the abolition of aristocratic privileges. Uh, Later waves of modern liberal thought and struggle were strongly influenced by the need to expand civil rights. Modern liberals have advocated gender and racial equality in their drive to promote civil rights, and global rights movements in the 20th century achieved several other objectives towards these goals. Quick important thing, though, to say on that note, because I also don't think that liberalism is wholly pure and good either a lot of those victories and movements happened because of agitation on the left i mean liberals are also pretty famous for doing nothing until we have to so (laughs) um let's be real here so credit where credit's due while the fundamental elements of contemporary society do have liberal roots 
uh, a lot of the movements like the civil rights movement and women's lib and the LGBTQ movement, etc., have a lot more to do with agitation from socialists in a liberal society, I think, than purely, purely liberalism. I think obviously it's combined. You have to live in a liberal society in order to have the ability to agitate like that, but still, yeah, you know, still matters to talk about that. I'm not going to go into too many criticisms of liberalism just because I don't have time, but you can find many. Um, if you'd like to debate with us about it, you're welcome to, but you also need to be respectful and well, have a real debate. Yeah, send your debates to Lindsay because I that, wouldn't have anything. Honestly, I, I don't even want to. <laughs> All right. Well. <laughs> or you can. I don't care. But, I mean, you also have to have a good argument before I'll respond. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't respond to trolls, so if you're going to troll me, then no. A certain dif- there's definitely a difference between classical liberalism and modern liberalism. So classical liberalism is prone to elitism and does not remove classist barriers. That's probably the well, it is the biggest difference. Whereas modern liberalism is more responsible for being involved in movements to take down classist, racist, sexist, etc. barriers. Um, but yeah, again, there's a difference between modern liberalism and classical liberalism. I would say that honestly, a lot of modern conservatives in a lot of ways have a lot more in common with classical liberals than like, I think anybody really in the center, like super in the center who really says they're a centrist is probably closer to a classical liberal than a modern liberal. But I mean, that's hard to say that's a generalization, but yeah. Well, I I mean with everyone it's different, right? Yeah. But I do think ideologically that's probably the case to some extent. I mean, classical liberalism and modern liberalism have enough in common that they're still the same idea. Mm -hmm. They just, they've changed a bit. I mean, that's that. So now we move on to everyone's favorite ideology, socialism. Yay. That's a great pun. Which is, what? That was a great pun. Was it a pun? Kind of. Okay. Everyone's favorite? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even intend that. But anyway, I'm just full of unintended puns today. But anyway. Best kind. So socialism is a left-wing ideology, and in a broad definition, it is an economic and social theory where the means of production are owned by the community as a whole with the government tasked to ensure equitable distribution of wealth. And it began forming during the mid-19th century, gaining popularity with the writings of Marx and Engels, along with the rise of labor unions in the wake of industrialization. Scholar Paul Brains is quoted... Socialists rejected the argument that the wealthy deserve their wealth because they created it, instead believing the wealth is created by the working class and wrongfully appropriated by the rich. I think that's a fair assessment, especially like being in our situation now. I mean, so Welsh mill owner Robert Owen is often described as the first person to be called a socialist. During the 1820s, he organized his mills into communities or collectives in a sort of social experiment. He improved the condition of his factories and believed this in turn made the workers happier and therefore more productive. And he actually showed a significant amount of success with this in his, with his mills in Wales. Not so much in the United States for whatever reason. It could have been all sorts of different issues. Socialism was first introduced in the United States by German immigrants who soon established the Socialist Labor Party in 1876. And the first socialist to hold public office in the U.S. was Fred Hack to the Sheboygan, Wisconsin City Council in 1897. It should also be mentioned here that socialism and communism are not one and the same. Marx described communism as being the purest form of socialism. 
So, I mean, you could call, like, for people who say socialism as a bad word, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's not a necessarily a good word either, but it's not a, definitely not a bad word. A lot of good things happen under socialism. For Canada, in Canada, for example, socialized Medicare, I mean, the fire department, postal service, I mean, come on. Like, we use socialism everywhere. Yeah. Like, even right. if it's stuff you would never think about well that's why I, I i see like some of these articles in light of what's happening in venezuela being like this is a failure of socialism i'm like mm, is it because it's not entirely socialism if you really think about it no. like venezuela's fucked up for well, a lot of reasons venezuela's a weird and again like they're a weird one because there's socialist elements to all governments like that and i mean our government so like it's not a purely socialist government it, they might claim it is but it's not i think there's a lot of like conflation between what socialism is actually is and what people think it is. Yeah. You just need a moderation yeah. of it to work properly. I'll get to that in a bit. Cause that's its own category. Of course. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if you call me a socialist, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> First of all, you're wrong, but I'm also not going to be offended. I definitely have socialist tendencies, but we're going to get to what I am in a bit. <laughs> Fair Examples of socialist ideologies are democratic socialism, which, I actually think most of my friends adhere to, I would say. I think pretty much, yeah. I would think the majority of people who vote at all on the left in any way, like even not that far left, think, you know. Yeah, I, I agree. And what basically democratic socialism... Even if they don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, democratic socialism is basically bringing on democratic or socialist reforms through democratic means. Yeah. There's also eco-socialism, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. The revolutionary socialism, which is... Probably one step below communism in terms of extremism. Uh, Nasserism, which is famous for being Nassar's of Egypt, his ideology. And an ideology that is unique to South and Central America, which is known as socialism of the 21st century. Example states that are currently... these, These aren't necessarily like socialist states, but they do reference socialism in their constitution these include nicaragua nepal sri lanka and portugal historical examples include algeria egypt iraq and granada example parties and groups are the green party of the united states Sinn fein of ireland or and the uk podemos of spain and the, the great patriotic pole of venezuela and quebec solidaire of quebec <laughs> which is now the third largest party in the Quebec National Assembly. Some famous, well-known socialists include people like Rosa Luxemburg, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So, yeah, that's socialism for you. It's, it's a tough one, for sure, just to talk about, because I think that what people consider a socialist and what actually really is a true socialist is... Yeah. There's a, well, lot, of, there's a lot of distance between them. It's also an ideology that has a lot of stigma around them. Like, to be fair, so does conservatism. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I'm friends with people who classify themselves as conservative. As conservative, they're good people. I mean, like most of my family is, so. Yeah. Technically. It's more just traditional conservatism. And also, I think that currently that conservatives seem to be flirting with horrible people. Um, that's not helping the rep. Anyway. Conservatism is not all bad. It's just that current conservatives seem to like to flirt with bad people. So yeah, conservatism. It's a 
an ideology, but it promotes essentially promotes traditional social institutions in the context of culture and civilization. So conservatives, as I'm going to discuss, actually really have a very, I think part of the reason it is misunderstood is a little like socialism. It's like really all over the place because it's very situational. So the central tenets of conservatism include tradition, human imperfection, organic society, hierarchy, authority, and property rights. So conservatives seek to preserve a range of institutions such as religion, parliamentary government, and property rights with the aim of emphasizing social stability and continuity. The more traditional elements considered, which are considered reactionaries, oppose modernism and seek a return to the, quote, way things were. So I think conservatism currently is falling into a little bit of reactionaryism, where it's just like this longing for the past. I'm not going to say all modern conservatives, obviously, but I think a lot. That's just like a thing that seems to be. At least the ones with the loudest voice. Yeah. I would say, well, and yeah. just like, I mean, just in even when you look at like the voting in like, for instance, the Conservative Party of Canada's last leadership election, like Sheer finished first, but a bunch of, I would consider them reactionaries essentially, finished in the top five. Yeah, that's true. Bernier. So, can't believe I'm Bernier, mentioning Kelly him. Leach, Brad Trust. Uh, Sheer. Sheer, obviously. <sighs> yeah. I don't have anything against conservatives as a general. In general, I have, a, I have a things against retro specifically. <laughs> we have, like we said, we have family and friends who are conservatives, yeah. and they're good people. There's just specific people who really aren't. Uh, and I do think, yeah, they have a lot of voices. I do think there's a lot of support for that, though, but I think it's not so much because people are reactionaries, but just the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I do think that the reactionary politicians are getting support as a result. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. The first established use of the term conservatism in a political context originated in 1818 with François-René de Chateaubriand during the period of the Bourbon Restoration that sought to roll back the policies of the French Revolution. Obviously not popular. (laughs) Conservatism is historically associated with right-wing politics and has been used to describe a wide range of views. So we talked about like the horseshoe and the the line. If you think of it as a line, which again, I, I definitely prefer the horseshoe method, but... The conservatism falls essentially to the right of liberalism, but there's kind of a center point between them. It's like liberal. There, a lot can be as close. To, it's, it's a big umbrella term. I mean, lots of liberals are very far left. A lot are very far right for a liberal. I mean, thinking about like, you know, Southern Democrats in the United States, for instance, right? Yeah. Conservatism is basically the same, same thing. thing. Like they can range from the center right yeah, to the right. There's way. the crazy far right people that we see now. And then there's lots of conservatives who really aren't that insane. <laughs> well, all. John McCain, we've already mentioned. We respect yeah, him. I would say he's certainly further right than lots. But um, I mean, I'm just he, but he's someone we respect. And he yeah, yeah. I mean, talks at sense. the very least, he wasn't a total. I, there's a lot of things about him I don't respect, but there's also a lot of things I do respect. He's a he's a complicated figure for me <laughs> and many people. And I'm mostly just trying not to fall victim to recency bias. But anyway, uh, well, I mean, actually, Peter Lougheed, great example of... Oh, perfect example. ...of being a, you know, a conservative who was center-left at the very, like, least (laughs) and was, like, far more left than a lot of conservatives. Yeah, uh, it's on social policies, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's where a lot of conservatives fall, is they're not necessarily... I mean, I think that a lot of conservatism really is divided in a lot of ways between, like like fiscal conservatism, which is purely economic, whereas like socially they're pretty liberal. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of social conservatives. And the social conservatives are the ones who are gaining ground quickly right now, which sucks. Uh, But that's why I also consider that more reactionary politics, because typically people don't necessarily always want things to be the way they were economically. It's sometimes usually meant 
as like a social thing. Yeah. We want things to be back to when they were good, if they ever were, which I argue they weren't. But anyway, like I said, there is no single set of policies regarded as conservative because the meaning of conservatism depends on what is considered traditional in any given time and place. So what's considered traditional in Canada now is different than what's considered traditional in, say, France in like 20 years ago. Like it, it varies or even in nowadays between Canada and say like. I don't know, insert any other country. (laughs) Things change, right? I mean, it's different. So as a result, conservatives from different parts of the world may disagree on a wide range of issues, which we've also seen throughout history. Conservative ideas in Great Britain emerged with the Tory movement during the Restoration period. Uh, Toryism also is in Canada, which I'll talk about in a minute. Toryism supported a hierarchical society with a monarch who ruled by divine right. Tories opposed the idea that sovereignty derived from the people and rejected the authority of parliament and freedom of religion. The Glorious Revolution destroyed this principle to some degree by establishing a constitutional government in England, leading to the hegemony of the the Tory-opposed Whig ideology. The Tories reformed their movement, now holding that sovereignty was vested in the three estates of the Crown, Lords, and Commons, rather than solely in the Crown. So basically, though, they're all for lots of government power. So one of the main conservative thinkers is Edmund Burke, who was an 18th century politician and philosopher. Burke opposed the French Revolution, but supported the American Revolution. It's kind of weird, but anyway. Uh, Burke served as the private secretary of the Marquis of Rockingham and as the official pamphleteer to the Rockingham branch of the Whig Party. I didn't know pamphleteer was a job title. That's pretty fun. Together with the Tories, they were the conservatives in the late 18th century UK. Burke's views were a mixture of liberal and conservative. He accepted the liberal ideas of private property and the economics of Adam Smith, but thought that economics should remain subordinate to the conservative social ethic, that capitalism should be subordinate to the medieval social tradition, and that the business class should be subordinate to aristocracy. I would argue that, like, most modern conservatives are a little bit kind of hybrid between classical liberalism and conservatism because they believe in, like... I mean, if you think about, like, conservatism, say, like, American conservatism currently, it's, like, well, hard to pin down because it's crazy people, but also, like, traditionally, American conservatism has been, you know, free trade, free markets... Um, all of the things that the liberals were advocating for and small government, et cetera. But they're also like a hybrid of like appeals to tradition and religion and et cetera. So it's like, I would say most modern conservatives truthfully are kind of a hybrid, but with the percentages of each one varying per person probably is how I sort of look at it. Cause obviously like liberalism, traditional conservatism is a lot different than what most conservatives, pe- most people who consider themselves conservatives now actually believe so my political beliefs are really fluid, in case you haven't noticed by now. <laughs> Anyways, Burke insisted on standards of honor derived from the medieval and aristocratic tradition and saw the aristocracy as the nation's natural leaders. That meant limits on the crown as he found the institutions of parliament to be better informed than commissions appointed by the executive. He favored an established church but allowed for a degree of religious toleration. Burke justified the social order of the, on the basis of tradition. Tradition represented the wisdom of the species and... <laughs> He valued con- or community and social harmony over other social reforms. Knowing how much you hate tradition, Burke is, like, not your guy. <laughs> no. Not at all. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, I'm not a huge fan of tradition. Certain traditions. But, well, yeah. Like, I think tradition in general. Like, the idea of it, I think, seems to... I, I would still say certain traditions... That's fair. ...bother me more than others. Of course, yeah, for sure. Anyway... Uh, Burke was a leading theorist in his day, along with David Hume, who I personally prefer, (laughs) in a lot of ways. 
uh, and found extreme idealism and endangerment to the broader liberties and, like Hume, rejected abstract reason as an unsound guide for political theory. Hume considered himself technically apolitical, while Burke described himself as a Whig. Quinton Hogg, chairman of the British Conservative Party in 1959, has stated that, quote, Conservatism is not so much a philosophy as an attitude, a constant force, performing a timeless function in the development of a free society and corresponding to a deep and permanent requirement of human nature itself. I guess take that to mean what you will. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a little closer to home, I'll talk about Canadian conservatism for a little, for a hot minute here. Because our system is so much derived from the British system, as we are still, as we've mentioned a few times, British subjects, technically. Canada's conservatives have their roots in the loyalist Tories who left the United States after the revolution. So most loyalists to the British crown bailed during the revolution to Canada. And so the Tories who were part of that um, ended up in Canada. So they developed in socioeconomic and political cleavages that existed during the first three decades of the 19th century and had the support of business, professional, and established church, the Anglican Church, elites in Ontario, and to a lesser extent in Quebec. I think the Catholics had a harder time. Like, the church probably had more to say about it. I'm not really sure. To be fair, I didn't look like that deep into this, but... Holding a monopoly over administrative and judicial offices, they were called the, quote, family compact in Ontario and the Chateau Clique in Quebec. It's a great name. Johnny MacDonald's successful leadership of the movement to confederate the provinces and his subsequent tenure as prime minister for the most part of the late 19th century rested on his ability to bring together the English-speaking Protestant oligarchy and the ultramontane Catholic hierarchy of Quebec and to keep them united in, conser in a conservative coalition. Yeah, it's important to note that the conservative party in Canada, and I imagine it's actually like this in most conservative parties around the world, is like, again, due to the fact that what's traditional is different to everybody in a way. The Conservative Party in Canada has been very, um, it's very, like, factional. Mm. Mm. And always has been. And I think, I imagine a lot of other conservative parties are like this. The Republican Party is an interesting thing on its own, and I don't really even want to talk about that. Because, I mean, John A. Macdonald already had to hold two different conservative factions together to have one party, so... Uh, if you go all the way back then, not much has really changed. I mean, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada essentially has to, like, do a lot of gymnastics to keep everyone happy. So the Conservatives combined pro-market liberalism and Toryism. So that's essentially the Canadian Conservative Party. They generally supported an activist government and state intervention in the marketplace, and their policies were marked by noblesse oblige, a paternalistic responsibility of the elites for the less well-off. So the fact that it's a paternalistic responsibility says a lot right there. From 1942, they were known as the Progressive Conservatives until 2003 when the National Party merged with the Canadian Alliance to form the Conservative Party of Canada. I imagine we'll probably talk more about Canadian politics later, so I'm not going to yeah. talk about that too much, but definitely there's like a lot of, I mean, everyone, I think, as much as we personally are not big fans of Stephen Harper, who was our prime minister for like a decade, his general biggest point of praise is that he brought a very large fragmented party together and has more or less held them together i would i would argue that the party's kind of coming apart but slowly i think we're not seeing it because the the people who are the loudest are the ones that are like the ones who are pushing away yeah well i actually i think they're actively fragmenting the party yeah i also in fairness i think the liberal party's fragmenting oh, as well course, so yeah. i think all of these really big parties are fragmented and i do think that there's something to be said for like having more than essentially. I mean, Canada does have more than two parties, but I mean, we essentially have it's two parties. It's been a two-party system. 
And so I think there's something to be said for some of these other countries that have smaller parties that still are worth voting for. <laughs> or like, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not to say that the NDP isn't worth voting for from a like ideological standpoint. I just mean that it's like really hard to justify sometimes when they're already so small and at such a disadvantage that it's like, well, people yeah. have that mental calculation, right? Of like, is my vote going to waste? I do think there's something to be said for having the ability of like more choice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next ideology is something I'm really excited to talk about. is called social democracy, which is the ideology. The bomb. Yeah, it's the ideology I adhere to. I would cl- I class myself as a social democrat. It is a center left ideology, and it is a moderate version of socialism. It is technically a type of socialism, but it is very different from other socialist ideologies. That it's worth talking about it on its own. And what it emphasizes the need to achieve socialist goals through democratic means as opposed to revolution. These needs include worker empowerment, distribution of wealth and income, universal health care and education, etc. The term social democrat was first coined by Marx in 1848 as a descriptor for the name of a left wing party representing the French middle class of whom he disapproved. <laughs> The idea of social democracy emerged from a debate between Edouard Bernstein and Rosa Luxemburg over whether socialists should aim for a revolution and the absolute downfall of capitalism or the reformist method. Bernstein strove for socialists to abandon the ambition of destroying capitalism and creating a socialist end state, arguing the point of socialism was to act as a force to improve the life and working conditions of workers. He's quoted as stating, the movement means everything for me, and what is usually called the final aim of socialism is nothing. It is considered the most successful form of socialism, with its use in the Nordic countries showing significant progress in terms of economic stability, improved quality of life, and expansion of civil rights. Also, the, uh, it is the ideology of many main opposition parties throughout Europe, Australia, and the main, it is actually the main governing party uh, in S- New Zealand. I should mention that not all social demo- demo- democratic parties are progressive. For example, in Romania, the Social Democratic Party of Romania are very socially conservative and tried to outlaw same-sex marriage through referendum, but failed. (laughs) But for the most part, they're progressive. So example parties and groups are the New Democratic Party of Canada, which are the majority of its members and voters, probably. The Labour Party of the UK, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand, and Malta. Harmony of Latvia, Morena, or the National Regeneration Movement, which is the current governing party in Mexico, and the African National Congress in South Africa. As I stated before, most, if not all, of the Nordic countries practice social democracy. And in Sweden and in Finland, the social democrats are the governing parties. Which, I mean, in those countries too, they aren't even really the most progressive of the parties that exist either. They tend to be like... I don't know like a ton about the Swedish Social Democratic Party, but I do know that it's like definitely very center left. Like it is not closer to center than left. I mean, it's very progressive, but it's definitely not like, I I think, yeah, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that, again, just hearing Social Democrat doesn't mean that they're like super hard to the left or super hard to anything. It just means that they're like a good kind of... They are moderate left. Moderate left. And... So again, those types of parties tend to be very umbrella-y. And also varies, I think, to the level of the country it's in because just 
the general level of social. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Romania. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, Sweden is generally a lot more progressive. Like, even their conservatives are generally more progressive. I mean, there's definitely exceptions. Yeah, so democracy, as we all generally have been taught in history, formed in Greece. As, at least they take the most credit for the formation of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair. Yeah, yeah. I would say that it's definitely fair. And the, I guess I'm going to talk specifically kind of about Athenian democracy, uh, which when we talk generally about like something that came out of Greece, for the most part, I think, unless like specified other, like specified, we're thinking of Athens, unless specified as being a Spartan or some other thing. It's generally Athenian things we're talking about. So Greek democracy is more or less a form of, uh, well, it's the original democracy, which is a pretty similar thing to direct democracy. The word democracy combines the elements of demos and kratos, uh, demos meaning people and kratos meaning force or power, and thus means literally people power. <laughs> so in the words <laughs> monarchy and oligarchy, the second element comes from archi, which me- or be- or meaning beginning, that which comes first, and hence also first place or power, sovereign or sovereignty. So it literally so, means the people come first? In democracy, yeah. Okay. Whereas in monarchy, literally means first place or power. So mono is one person. Right, yeah. Yeah. One might expect the term demarchy to have been adopted by an analogy, or adopted, um, but they chose democracy. Because the word demarchy has already been taken and meant mayor- mayoralty, like mayors. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, democracy it is. So it is unknown whether the word democracy was in existence when systems that came to be called democratic were first instituted. The word is attested in the works of Herodotus, who wrote some of the earliest surviving Greek prose, but this might not have been before 440 or 430 BC. Around 460 BC, an individual is known with the name of Democrates, a name possibility coined as a gesture of democratic loyalty. The name can also be found in Aeolian Temnus. Um... So Athens was not the only polis in ancient Greece that instituted a democratic, a democratic regime. Uh, Aristotle points to other cities that adopted governments in a democratic style. However, accounts of the rise of democratic institutions are in Ath- reference to Athens since only this city-state had sufficient historical records to speculate on the rise and nature of democracy. So basically how it works. Estimates of the population of ancient Athens vary. During the 4th and 5th century BC, or 4th century BC, there might have been some 250,000 to 300,000 people in Attica. Uh, citizen families could have amounted to 100,000 people. Only male adult Athenian citizens who had completed their military training had the right to vote in Athens. The percentage of the population that actually participated in the government was about 10 to 20% of the total number of inhabitants, but this varied from the 5th to 4th century BC. Voting excluded a majority of the population, slaves, freed slaves, children, women, and foreigners who lived in Athens. The women had limited rights and privileges, had restricted movement in public, and were very segregated from men. So... Pretty much just all dudes. Um, <laughs> so there were three main bodies of governance. Ecclesia, the boule, and courts. This is super jumbled, but basically it is a form of direct democracy. The main bodies of the Athenian democracy were the assembly, composed of male citizens, the boule, composed of 500 citizens, and the law courts, composed of a massive number of jurors chosen by a lot with no judges. There were only about 30,000 male citizens, but several thousand of them were politically active each year, and many of them quite regularly for years on end. The Athenian democracy was not direct, or was direct, not only in the sense that decisions were made by the assembled people, 
but also in the sense that the people through the assembly, Boulay, and law courts controlled the entire political process, and a large population, a proportion of citizens were involved constantly in the pro public process. Modern democracies being representative, not direct, do not resemble the Athenian system. So how democracy works now is essentially we all vote for a person to represent us who then represents us in the House. In Athenian slash direct democracy, every single voter shows up and votes on an issue and you go with the answer. <laughs> it's got its problems for sure. First of all, having 30,000 people gather to vote is not that efficient, but anyway. Also, yeah, relevant to the history of direct democracy is the history of ancient Rome, so specifically the Roman Republic. Rome displayed many aspects of democracy, both direct and indirect, from the era of Roman monarchy all the way to the collapse of the Roman Empire. So the Senate, formed at the first days of the city, lasted through the Kingdom, Republic, and Empire, and even continued after the decline of Western Rome. And its structure and regulations continued to influence legislative bodies worldwide. As to direct democracy, the ancient Roman Republic had a system of citizen lawmaking, or citizen formulation and passage of law, and a citizen veto of the legislature made law. So many historians mark the end of the Republic with the passage of a law named Lex Titia, 27 November 43. 3 BC, which eliminated many oversight provisions. I mean, the fall of the Roman Empire is a whole thing that we're not going to talk about right now. <laughs> At all. In terms of direct democracy, kind of more modern, modern era citizen lawmaking began in towns in Switzerland in the 13th century. In 1847, the Swiss added the statute referendum to their national constitution. They soon discovered that merely having the power to veto parliament's laws was not enough. In 1891, they added the constitutional amendment initiative. Swiss politics since 1891 have given the world a valuable experience base with the national-level constitutional amendment initiative. So in the past 120 years, more than 240 initiatives have been put to referendums. The populace has been conservative, approving only about 10% of these initiatives. In addition, they have often opted for a version of the initiative re rewritten by government. So, yeah. Direct democracy is still at work in Switzerland. Direct democracy is probably most known really for, like, its involvement in referendums now. Just because of the fact that on a government level, it really doesn't work. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I mean. It's worked pretty, out pretty well in Switzerland, actually. It has. But I mean, I think, again, it's one of those things where, like, small population and kind of it's still limited. Yeah. You know? Like, I don't know that it works on a scale of, like, well, the United States. Yeah. Like, I mean, it like, could possibly work in Canada. Yeah. Just because we kind of have a, we have a small and mostly... I wouldn't, not necessarily centralized, but it's like generally along a similar line, you know what I mean? But yeah. it could possibly I work. I mean, I, I do think it would work in Canada. I think it would work well in Canada on some level because of how like spread out we are in some senses. It might actually help, but yeah. anyway. Even if if it's just at a provincial level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that direct democracy is really, for the most part, used mostly in things like referendums and smaller scale. Yeah, I don't think any other country uses it to the scale that Switzerland does. Like God, no. Switzerland literally has, I think it's three or four referendum uh, dates per year. Yeah. I mean, again, in the past 120 years, they've had 240 initiatives being put to referendums. It's yeah. not tons, but it's still a lot more than other places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's like any major changes to the Constitution I mean, that's has like, to go through referendum. Yeah. I think. In I, Switzerland, at, th at least. I haven't I looked, honestly, too much into Switzerland. I really, like, half-assed this section because there isn't a lot to talk about. Yeah, that's fair. It's, <laughs> it's a straightforward, simple thing. It's a thing. very yeah. straightforward thing. Like, you all show up, you vote. Exactly. 
you result. Did, I know in Switzerland they they have these like citizen like citizen meetups. Yeah. In like like they're like kind of auditorium like. Yeah. Well, really, how the poll it was in in Athens. I mean, you meet up in like a. Yeah, exactly. It looks it's in like an the, amphitheater. Like, yeah, it is an amphitheater where citizens can go there and meet up, and then they literally to vote, raise their hands, and then the votes are counted. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. And I mean, I, that's, in, that's like really all I have to say yeah, about direct democracy. But, and then in some cantons, I know that they just do the ballot thing, which is fine. Yeah, and what's come? What's yeah for sure? I mean it. There isn't really a lot to say about democ- direct democracy. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Other than it's important to realize that Greek Greek democracy looks nothing like democracy no, now. But Unless it, you're in Switzerland, in which case it looks actually kind of similar. <laughs> <laughs> Although more than just white Greek men can vote. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so now we're moving on to what I would probably say is a pretty extreme form of direct democracy, which is, and I'm sure all of you have heard this at this point, anarchism. Woo! The thing about anarchism is it is a umbrella term encompassing a huge part of the political spectrum. And despite what popular belief, it does not mean a lawless society like people say. It does not mean the state of nature Thomas Hobbes is talking about. No. At all. It is the idea of a society operating without hierarchy where all people are equal with an equal say and is based on voluntary and cooperative institutions. In anarchism, the state is viewed as undesirable and even harmful. So while it's true that in an anarchist society, there's no state, there is still law and order. It's just simply the people directly vote on what, yeah. on, on laws and whatnot. So arguably, it has been around since prehistoric humans and Neanderthals, since authority as a concept did not exist. Notable anarchist-like civilizations were in the Indus Valley civilization, which is now India, China, and Greece. Classical anarchism, which is what most people know about, or think they know about, rose out of the French Revolution in with anti-state and federalist ideas. Pierre-Joseph Proudhon is credited as the first person to term the word anarchist as a shortening of anti-hierarchist, which is a mouthful. Little bit. <laughs> uh, he argued against the use of unauthorized hierarchy in a political in political systems, saying. Quote, as man seeks justice and equality, so society seeks order in anarchy. And also saying, whoever lays his hands on me to govern me is a usurper and a tyrant, and I declare him my enemy. Which I think is such a badass thing to say. Proud Hon developed the ideology, which is known as mutualism, where the liberation of the working class requires them to have access to the rewards of their labor, as well as granting them the freedom to collectively decide the means to achieve said labor. They view the state of and capitalism as corruptions to the system in order for them to gain the benefits at the expense of the workers, and therefore those two entities as economic theories must be dismantled. Mutualism is also against the gaining of capital through loans, investments, and rent, as none of those require true labor to profit. Mutualism inspired countless more philosophers to develop their own schools of thought in anarchism. Ideologies include anarcho-syndicalism, left libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism, though although this last one is disputed, and <laughs> collectivism, etc. Thing about anarcho-capitalism is it still requires the oppression of workers to gain capital, yeah. so that's why a lot it's of kind of like a confusing term. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why a lot of anarchists don't uh, like say 
anarcho-capitalism is not anarchist. Yeah, I mean, which, it, it, it does honestly feel a little bit like an oxymoron. Like, it just seems kind of like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, how, do you, how do you have that? I don't yeah, really it's just basically creating a stateless society for the business owners to freely which seems oppress horrible. the workers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so... Current communities, there are current communities uh, that are anarchists, are the popular indigenous council of Oaxaca. Sorry, Mexicans. Um, the, uh, the Barcelona Squatters Movement and Rojava, also known as uh, Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. Past communities were the Paris Commune, the revolutionary state of Catalonia during the Spanish Civil War. The Ukrainian Free State or the Revolutionary Insurrectionary Army of Ukraine or the Black Army and the Occupy movement. Think about the like when you say like groups such as like um, like these Antifa groups, they are they do count as anarchists because they don't have leaders and uh, people. It's not that they're not anarchists because they go around smashing no, shit. They're anarchists because they don't have a central. No, and they collectively vote as a group what yeah. to do with like the group. Each- I honestly think of, especially things like Antifa, I think of them a lot of like having like, I mean, a lot, a lot of like places have chapters, right? So it's like an organization technically, but everyone's involved. Yeah. In the voting, there's just someone who there's a couple people who just, it's like almost like a board, right? There's people who take on a role to like, you know, do more like quote unquote leading, but they're at the mercy too of other people. So they can't just do something without approval and like, they just do, they're just like the so-called person to talk to. I mean, you, you always just need some kind of point, <laughs> you yeah. know, like even though they're also still held accountable by the group that they're part of, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Current groups are the Kurdistan Democratic Solution Party, which is the main governing party in Iraqi Kurdistan, I believe. The Freedom and Solidarity Party of Turkey and the Workers' Solidarity Alliance of the USA. A lot of these anarchist groups are right now in Syria and in Turkey. Another known group, which I don't like to mention because I do not agree with their methods, are the Kurdistan People's Party. Yeah. Or the Kurdistan Workers' Party, excuse me, or the PKK. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what Turkey does, but I, don't, I also don't agree with what the PKK does. Yeah, I don't think there's winners on that one. Definitely. Notable anarchists include Noam Chomsky, the Dead Kennedys, which I just had to mention because I love the Dead Kennedys, so Emma Goldman, Alan Moore, and Philip K. Dick. It's also, I should also mention that there are thousands of businesses in Canada and the United States, like equally, that practice a form of like mutualism. And it works out pretty well. Like they've, it's actually shown that a lot of these businesses actually make profit a lot more. It's not necessarily like there's, it's a collective ownership of the company or the factory or whatnot. Yeah. And there's a lot of examples of these where it's actually super successful and they've actually managed to profit and everyone gains, gains like an equal amount of, it's not like they gain an equal amount of profit in terms of their job because like, of course, the salary differs depending on like longevity and what your role, I mean, how much role, education your role yeah. requires, et cetera. But in terms of profiting off of investments, all of the investments that they own are equal. Yeah. So they get the equal amount of investments. Yeah. Having share, essentially some kind of, sh- like, yeah, equal share in the company, like, makes you, yeah, benefit yeah, from absolutely. Well. absolutely. Yeah. Even if it's not, like, purely equal financially, I guess, but there's, like, like you know, like, based on salary, like, that way. Yeah. Like, like, the returns from it are. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand the differences in salary. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. Because it mean, like that, depends that's on just also kind of fair. Yeah, it depends on experience and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't agree with inequality for women, but that's no. a very tricky subject which you won't get into. Yeah. But when it ter- in terms of like investment, I think it's completely fair that everyone has the yeah. exact same amount. Yeah. They have the exact same amount of state. For sure. You might have noticed I didn't mention one specific ideology in here, but there's a reason for that. Uh, it's because I'm going to talk about it. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anarcho-communism is. Just like real quick, I'm going to talk about it. It's another just basically form of communism. Or not communism, anarchism, Jesus. Um, and communism. And communism. So anarcho-communism is also known as anarchist communism, free communism, libertarian communism, and communist anarchism. So it has like <laughs> four other names. We're going to call it our anarcho-communism. Yeah. <laughs> the libertarian communism thing makes me laugh, actually. I don't like that name. It makes name. sense, though. It does. I don't like that name, though. <laughs> Just because of how libertarians end up being in practice. <laughs> anyway, yeah, anarcho-communism is a political philosophy and anarchist school of thought which advocates the abolition of the state, capitalism, wage labor, and private property while retaining respect for personal property along with collectively owned items, goods, and services in favor of a common ownership of the means of production, direct democracy, and a horizontal network of workers' councils with production and consumption based on the guiding principle from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. So... That's a quote by Karl Marx. So it's basically still anarchist. It's an anarchist. Shares a lot of the same principles with anarchism, but also shares basic values with Karl Marx and Marxism. So It's basically true communism, isn't it? Yeah, essentially it is. So sort of one of the major thinkers of this movement was Peter Kropotkin, who I've done some work on. He's a, a Russian political Philosopher. You've mentioned him a few times in our conversations before. Yeah, I think. well, he's pretty important to the con- to the anarchist movement. Um, I mean, Emma Goldman was like heavily inspired by Peter Kropotkin, oh, okay. so his his works were like pretty influential to a lot of anarchists. Not even like outside of just anarcho communists, but like or not or just like all a lot of anarchists. So he's often seen as the most important theorist of anarchist communism. He outlined his economic ideas in the conquest of bread and fields, factories, and workshops. Uh, those were his two books. Kropotkin felt that cooperation is more beneficial than competition, arguing in his major scientific work, Mutual Aid, a Factor of Evolution, (laughs) that uh, this was well illustrated in nature. He advocated the abolition of private property while retaining respect for personal property through the, quote, expropriation of the whole of social wealth by the people themselves, and for the economy to be coordinated through a horizontal network of voluntary associations where goods are distributed according to the physical needs of the individual rather than according to labor. He further argued that these needs, as society progressed, would not merely be physical needs. Quote, as soon as his material wants are satisfied, other needs of an artistic character will thrust themselves forward the more ardently. Aims of life with each and every individual vary, and the more society is civilized, the more will individuality be developed, and the more will desires be varied. He maintained that in anarcho-communism, quote, houses, fields, and factories will no longer be private property, and that they will belong to the commune or the nation and money, wages, and trade would be abolished. Individuals and groups would use and control whatever resources they needed, as the aim of anarchist communism was to place, quote, the product reaped or manufactured at the disposal of all, leaving to each the liberty to consume them as he pleases in his home. Kropotkin supported the expropriation of private property into the commons or public goods while retaining, yeah, personal respect or personal property to ensure that everyone would have access to what they needed without being forced to sell their labor to get it. 
in The Conquest of Bread, he wrote, We do not want to rob anyone of his coat, but we do wish to give the workers all those things, the lack of which makes them fall an easy prey to the exploiter. And we will do our utmost to that none shall lack aught, that not a single man shall be forced to sell the strength of his right arm to obtain a bare sus substance for himself and his babes. This is, not, this is what we mean when we talk of expropriation. So essentially, yeah, it is kind of like a pure form of communism, although there's a lot more, like, emphasis on on private rights as well and, like, individual rights, okay. which is definitely a thing in anarchism in general, is it is a much more individualistic yeah. I mean, you're ideology. still, like, private property is not... Yeah. Proudhon said that property is theft, but I, I, what he later clarified is that some property is theft. Yeah. So, for example, his idea was that we're, um, you owned your house... The workers own the factory, and then you're allowed to distribute, like in a in a uh, market. Like you, there's still a market and whatnot. Yeah, but. and I think that's essentially kind of what anarcho-communism is about. I mean, it's so like similar. It's just like slightly different than communism in that it does have a, like a lot of emphasis on individual rights, but it's slightly different than like anarchism in that way. In that, I believe it's still kind of, I don't know. Economically, it's kind of similar, I guess. I get you. It's it's like a it's kind of an interesting hybrid. It definitely and like how I remember Kropotkin talking about how he wanted it to happen. Like he had theorized how like an anarcho communist society would come to be, and it was different than like how com the evolution it was different than the evolution of pure communism. So pure communism is supposed to evolve where like at least in Leninism, it's supposed to evolve from like the proletariat sees power, and then you know they eventually like give up that power so that everyone's on the same footing. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so it's almost like it becomes a top-down reform into communism once, after the revolt, it's top-down. Whereas in anarcho-communism, Kropotkin theorized it basically would go the other way around. Like, it would start from the bottom up. Essentially, right. like, we'll start this on a small level, so like, cities and regions, and then it'll grow to, or we'll start with like, you know, communities that'll grow into cities, that'll grow into like, states, like, you know, provinces, whatever, territories which will eventually grow into countries. Right. So he saw things as being like a bottom-up change, which I think is actually what makes anarcho-communism more feasible than communism. Yeah, I, I understand In that. terms of like how that would work. Because, I mean, we've seen historically um, communism definitely like leaves itself available to uh, despots and dictators. Mm -hmm. So rising from the, like, the bottom-up sort of way would make more sense. This is going to only work on a... It's only going to work on a small scale to start because, I mean, let's be real. Most things really do just work better on small scales. Yeah. And then you can kind of escalate them into a bigger scale. Just real quick. So to date, the best known examples of an anarchist community or communist society are the anarchist territories during the Spanish, Re Spanish Revolution and the free territory during the Russian Revolution. Through the efforts and influence of the Spanish anarchists during the Spanish Revolution within the, within the Spanish Civil War starting in 1936... Anarchist communism extended or existed in most of Aragon, parts of the Levant and Andalusia, as well as the, in the stronghold of anarchist Catalonia, before being crushed by the combined forces of the regime that won the war, Adolf Hitler, Benito Mussolini, Spanish, the Spanish Communist Party, repression, which was backed by the Soviet Union, as well as economic and armaments blockades from the capitalist countries and the Spanish Republic itself. Uh, during the Ruf Russian Revolution, anarchists such as Nestor Makhno, worked to create and defend through the Revolutionary Insurrectionary Army of Ukraine, anarchist communism in the free territory of the Ukraine from 19 before being conquered by the Bolsheviks in 1921. So there have been some examples <laughs> that existed. But I remember, like, I 
this is a really quick and you know brief overview and I, I haven't really read a lot of this stuff in a long time so I, it's kind of fuzzy in my brain at the moment but I remember when I was studying it it seemed like an actual legitimately quite plausible way to to function like I found even just like in reading say like Kropotkin and Karl Marx I found reading Kropotkin's work far more like useful I want to say just from the perspective of like Kropotkin laid out how we could do this like here are some steps here are some things whereas like I feel like I mean I mentioned earlier Marxism is not really about establishing a state of order but merely like or a state of affairs it's merely about kind of assessing the conditions of society so I feel like you know Marxism is useful in that it helps us criti- you know critically think of how our society is but also once you get to a point of acting on it it's like oh okay well (laughs) here we are now we don't know what to do and a dictator happens so yeah that's just kind of my brief thoughts on that but i yeah i don't really have that strong of an opinion anymore yeah that's fair i used to have a i kind of i i don't want to say dabbed with anarchy but i definitely became really fascinated with the ideology yeah me too generally i still am just even from just a purely philosophical standpoint i find it really fascinating like yeah it's uh, i think it has its place for sure like i don't really think that i don't i've i've really grappled over time with me for like thinking of like well would it even work on a large scale i tend to try and just avoid being hung up on that and thinking about like everything else about it because i feel like that is a lingering question and we'll just never really know i think like the thing the one that i really grasp to is mutualism but not yeah and i don't think that mutualism was meant to be done on a large scale. large scale it was meant to be done on the scale of like with workers and factories and their homes yeah Which, and i think that would uh, that kind of like yeah. it's shown to actually work yeah and i believe that that's actually a good yeah yeah well and like, i think I that's that. the thing about anarchism is that like one I don't even know that the question of whether it would work on a large scale is even a valid question because anarchy or anarchists aren't really even promoting that. By abolishing the state, like you don't have a country anymore, so it can be like smaller groups that are communal and yeah. Like that was essentially the idea behind like anarcho-communism is that we start in these like communities. So say like we'll just use Calgary as an example. Like that's even probably too big to start, but you know what I mean. Like we'll use Calgary as an example. You know, it's small, but it's big enough that, you know, we can all work together and like we're, you know, we're our own community, whereas like that Edmonton's its own community and we work together with those communities. There's shared like cooperation between communities, obviously, but we don't have a nation state necessarily anymore. It's kind of the impression I get from from anarchism in general is that it's like we don't want a state. We want it to be a smaller thing where we all work together still, but you know, you, or, you still organize yourself in a smaller group. Yeah. Which then makes me, yeah, the question of, well, would it work on a big thing? I think that just, that question is like, I'm not even sure it's a valid question. Well, I think, <laughs> I think in, in, in order to like understand if it would, we would need to start small. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, but I mean. I mean, it's not like we're going to launch an entire country. Into, no, 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 There's no, no, no way no. to do that anyway. Like. No, start small. Like Jesus Christ, people. But yeah, like I said, I think mutualism would be a good start well no not that's i'm, I'm kind of going off on a different thing but like mutualism would be a good platform to base industry off of yeah absolutely. because it has shown to be very beneficial and i think it could actually fix a lot of 
issues we see in workplaces today, like, especially in terms of like wages and whatnot. You know what I mean? Definitely. So, but yeah, I, we, we definitely missed a lot of ideologies. We know that, but these are just ones we felt was important. Yeah. We sort of skimmed through a few, but I mean, it's hard to, all of them could have their own episode in some ways. Exactly. I so, mean, we'll do an episode on feudalism I mean, let's, at some point. Yeah. Cause I mean, we're, one of the ideas that I, I had, and I think I mentioned this to you, was kind of do what, what, what was a day in the life like for like, say someone in, uh, feudal I don't know, Japan. feudal Japan or medieval Europe yeah. or ancient Rome, like a day in the life kind of deal. And we just, it's not really based on, it's based kind of on the historical stuff, but we like say we follow around a rant, like a person we create, we make up, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, like we, no, totally. we make up a person and then we're like, this is what, like, I don't know. This is what uh, Kevin does during the day. Kevin's staring at me now. So, um, yeah. he's, anyway, he's but that's tapping, he's kind tapping of an, his wrist, yeah, although his arm doesn't that's, reach. That's kind of the idea that I had. But anyway, uh, I'm going to, I think we should skip the good news for the week, unless you had a good one. Not so, really. yeah, we're going to skip the good news for the week just because we didn't really have one I mean, and we're running way over time. Yeah. Uh, this is probably going to be a lot shorter. We're coming up on three hours, even Jesus though it's probably going to be taken off. But I did just put a poll on the page. Um, I, I, it's probably, I, I'm going to extend it after this, but it's going to be going. And it's basically asking, are you okay with us going like around the three hour mark? Like, is that too long or is that too, sh- like, yeah. are you okay with that? Because there are a few episodes we know we're going to go way, way over. And we just want to know if it's worth, if we should do them in one shot or split them into parts. Yeah. I mean, there's we some. We prefer to do them in one part or in one shot if we can. Sometimes, yeah. But. I mean, like, for example, the moon landing episode, definitely expect that to be around three hours because yeah. there's a lot of background to explain and it's just not going to get done in one go. Yeah. There's, so. a, there's, a, there's a few coming up I think we'll probably spend. Lots definitely. Of time on, so. so let us know in the poll. It's going to be on there. Certainly next season. So yeah. We, we absolutely. do need to know this. We're going we're gonna to probably ask a few times between now and when our next season starts. But. Yeah. Absolutely. So hopefully. You guys are okay with it? I've heard most people say they're cool with it because most other podcasts like go on for yeah quite a while. But yeah, let us know. Um, the poll is up. I'm probably going to make one on Instagram in a bit. So anyway, let us know. And yeah, that's it. I think yeah. So thank you guys so much. This is Jonah and Lindsay. Thank and, you guys so and much. Kevin. And Kevin, and Kevin, Kevin's right here. Sorry, buddy. Sorry. Don't look at me like that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.